BP added more than $70 billion to the U.S. economy in 2022 by making investments from coast to coast. Investments like building charging hubs for fleets of electric buses in California and starting up new infrastructure in the Gulf of Mexico. It's and, not or. See what doing both means for energy nationwide at bp.com slash investing in America. And now the list of things that you can buy at the Chicago Reader store at chicagoreader.com. Things to wear like Chicago Reader hats, t-shirts, bandanas, and face masks. Things for your daily life like the Chicago Reader camping mug, Chicago Reader tote bags, and a Chicago Reader reporter's notebook. Things for you to read like our Reader recipes, the Chicago Reader 420 Companion, our Chicago Reader Best of book series from journalists Maya Dukmasaba, Mike Sula, Ben Jarofsky, and Lior Galil, the Chicago Reader coloring book, and the Chicago Reader stay home puzzle. Find the Chicago Reader store at chicagoreader.com and show your support for the nation's first free weekly news newspaper since 1971. Bonus time in the Ben Drusky show as I speak. Oh, I always get nervous. I'm kind of superstitious. It's Friday, May 13th. Kind of superstitious just to say that, which is really weird for me to be superstitious, but I'm kind of like step over the lines. Here's a headline in the uh, New York Times front page of the New York Times today. As cryptocurrencies melt down, 300 billion evaporates in days. Wow. Uh, we are not going to be talking about that with my distinguished guest today, but uh, distinguished guest, just pause and think about that. 300 billion evaporates in days. <laughs> Was it ever real in the first place? Is anything real anymore? You know what I mean? On paper, people lost $300 billion. Like, what does that even mean? I don't know. What do I know? Um, I can barely keep my... Uh, bank balanced my bank account balance all right without further ado i'm going to ask my distinguished guest to introduce himself take it away distinguished guest thanks ben uh i'm david ferris associate professor of political science at roosevelt university um contributing writer at the week um sort of and then um <laughs> author of it's time to fight dirty how democrats can build a lasting majority in american politics and uh, i was following the crypto news um i don't know anything you know i don't have any expertise about this but uh I always would be reluctant to invest in something that begins with crypto, you know, um, <laughs> just because I, what I think of crypto, I think of crypto fascism, you know, like incipient creeping fascism. What is it like a creeping currency or something? Um, looks like a Ponzi scheme to me. So uh, I'm sorry to any of your listeners who lost money. It's a tragedy to all these uh, celebrities were shilling for it. I think that gave people more confidence than they should have had in the whole enterprise. I've, I've stayed away from it from day one. I'm like, I like fiat currency. I like the bank. It sounds good to me. If I don't get rich quick, that's fine. I can live yeah. with that, you know? <laughs> and, and, the, and the part that always gets me, uh, and I, I did not intend to have a conversation about cryptocurrencies, but that was a funny riff about crypto. Uh, the part that always gets me is that when even the experts start talking about crypto by saying, I don't know how it works. Like I read, there was a Paul Krugman who was a Nobel prize winning economist, columnist for the New York times. So that would be a guy who would understand stuff. He goes, well, I really don't know how this works. <laughs> Krugman doesn't understand. Whatever. 
I mean, my uh, understanding of, of crypto is like, you know, extremely thin. And then there's this NFT stuff that I just, I have no idea what's going on. I was, I saw a story about somebody that bought a, a, a picture of an Instagram post for $350,000 or something, and then could only sell it for $115. And I'm like, well, <laughs> you know, Instagram is free, guys. I mean, I don't know. Why would you? <laughs> why would anybody pay 115 for it? Yeah. <laughs> Let alone. Try. All right. Let's not uh, non-fungible tokens. Yeah. That's another one where they, wherever they explain it. I'm like, mm, I don't believe you, the writer, understand what you just wrote. OK, I'm just saying that right now. You, the writer who wrote this sentence, you don't <laughs> understand it. It's clear. And I, by the way, OK, we're really in a tangent with a tangent. So many times I would read explanations of. The TIF program in the city of Chicago, which is something I've written about extensively and thought way too much about. And I would read the writer's explanation of what a TIF is, and I would go, you don't know what this program is. I'm telling you that right now. You put a bunch of jargon in this sentence. You have no idea what it means. You just want to move from that point. You want to cover that point. You know? Anyway, yeah. all right, let's move on. And um, the, uh, the big, big news of the day, politically speaking, uh, obviously, uh, is the um, the leaked uh, version of a of a draft that would destroy Roe v. Wade? Uh, been, we've been talking about it obsessively on the show. Uh, David and I were uh, exchanging um, uh, uh, texts about it from almost the moment it happened. Looking forward to having a deeper conversation about it. So I guess we'll start with that first, as opposed to starting with uh, your. Really well done, in my humble opinion. Farewell column uh, in uh, the week this um, that you just sent me today. I guess when did you write that? By the way, I wrote it early in the week. It ran. It ran yesterday. Um, as they are running a bunch of farewells from their opinion columnists this week. So, um, yeah, they were like, if you want to do, no, you don't have to. <laughs> if you want to write a farewell, you can do that. Uh, I'm going to continue doing some news writing for them. Um, but I'm going to need to find another outlet for paid opinion writing. And so that's a project for the summer. <laughs> well, that's a, you're a um, really a good, talented opinion writer, in my humble opinion. So someone should pick you up. Uh, you, have a, you have a way with words. Uh, you're funny. And uh, you can take complex uh, notions and explain them in language that pretty much everybody can understand. Uh, and you don't run away from tough positions. So uh, that's, to me, what a columnist is supposed to do. Uh, and I heard somebody uh, pick this young man up. And run his, I call him a young man because he's way younger than me. Uh, and um, and uh, get him back out there. Get those opinions going. In the meantime, uh, you're always welcome on my show uh, to give your opinion. So, Thank uh, you. Appreciate it. And... Um, so we'll go if at the end, maybe uh, mem go down memory lane over the last six years. But let's start with, um, wow, the, the state of affairs uh, in this country, politically speaking. It's just you saw it coming, uh, uh, David. You, you, we all knew this day was coming. Donald Trump appointed three judges to the Supremes uh, who essentially had dedicated their lives uh well, at least two cases, to opposing abortion. They are joined by the two who are already aboard. They all lied in their confirmation hearings uh, or prevaricated, whatever your choice of word would be. Uh, and here we are. 
they're, they're about to blow up, it sure seems, uh, Roe v. Wade. Um, I'll start with this question, and then you can take it. We'll go whichever direction. It occurred to me that it gets, gets to the leak. That uh, who was the who leaked this uh, decision, this draft, uh, and the right immediately said, "Oh, it had to be from the left," because I think they just did that to divert attention. But my guess is that it was somebody on uh, the right uh, who wanted to lock the five judges into uh, voting against Roe. Uh, so my question to you is this: Do you think there's any possibility in the world that somehow or other the public uh, outcry? Uh, over uh, the the uh, decision will change the ultimate decision in that uh, either Alito will rewrite the draft, change some of his language, uh, or more to the point, uh, one of the five judges or two of the five judges or whatever will back away uh, from destroying Roe. Your thoughts on that? It's a great question. I mean, it's, it's mostly speculation. We just don't know. Um, I, I think the fact that Roberts came out and immediately confirm the authenticity of the draft um, means that we're pretty far along the tracks of, of that draft getting released as a majority opinion. Yeah, presumably, these negotiations took place months ago, um, and, and the draft was agreed on by at least five justices. I assume it's just five. Um, and it's not, in my mind, terribly likely that any of them are going to change their mind. Um, First of all, it's not going to be Alito. Alito is the worst person on earth. Okay, he's never going to change his mind about anything. I mean, some of these guys, especially Alito and Thomas, I think uniquely, are, are, they're just there on the court for vengeance. You know, that like they they don't care. They don't care what the public thinks about anything. If they did, they wouldn't have written this opinion in the first place yeah. um, because they can read a poll. Um, Barrett is not gettable. She's a she's just a fundamentalist ideologue, right? Like there's there's just no reaching her. Um, and so that leaves Gorsuch and, and Kavanaugh. Um, two people who at least ostensibly have some degree of concern about the court's legitimacy um, in the eyes of the public and the degree to which its its edicts are going to be um, observed and complied with by uh, you know ordinary citizens and, and the states and various levels of government in the US um, so that that's my prediction if 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 anybody can be moved by the, the, the public opinion outcry it's it's one of the two of them um, and, um, I just, we just don't know what's, what's going on under the hood there. Um, as far as the leaker, I, I do think that you're right, but again, we're, we really are in like the realm of pure speculation. I mean, I think the, the reason that you might think it's not from the left, um, is that leaking a Supreme court draft is, could, could end somebody's career. And then we're, we're talking about these, um, clerks on the, in the federal court system who are. In effect, it's sort of, sort of apprentices for the judges. They are um, generally graduates of the top law programs or um, standout graduates of, of some of the some of the non-elite programs, and they do tons of research for the judges. I mean, in, in a real sense, a lot of the opinions that come out of the federal judiciary are written by these clerks, who are you know uh, 26, 27, 28 years old, um, and for one of them to risk the the whole you know the next 50 years of their lives. <laughs> To leak this thing, yeah, sure, right, maybe. Um, but the but the question I would throw back is like, okay, who is a person? <laughs> let's let's say that we believe this conservative. Wanna, we, they want to lock it in theory. Okay, who's a person with access to Supreme Court decisions um, who doesn't care? Who just, it doesn't have a career. It could care less about any of that stuff. 
uh, and that's Clarence Thomas's wife, Jeannie Thomas, who's a just an unhinged conservative activist. It would not surprise me if you know they wrote these things together. Or like you know, he was like, "Mark, mark this up for me." Um, and uh, and she's a she's a she's a hateful little weird, but little, like, like she's just a bad person. Um, and there'd be no repercussions for her. what are they gonna do to her? You know, um, <laughs> you can't throw her in jail for leaking a court decision. So. Um, that that's my guess. It was Thomas. Um, whether that's because somebody was wavering in deliberations, um, Kavanaugh or Gorsuch, uh, I don't know. I we, I think we know that Roberts is probably trying to get one of the two of them to come over with him on a on a narrower opinion that might hold up the um, the Mississippi fifteen week abortion ban, which would in effect <clears throat> lower the um, the viability threshold of of Roe v. Wade for a for a fetus, right? Um, it's just, you know, it's, it's just as arbitrary as anything else. Right. But like 15 weeks would at least be, um, not as bad as what, what was circulated last week. So, um, and it would still, I think, allow 90, 95% of the abortions that do happen to continue to happen in the United States, um, would still be a major loss for reproductive rights and uh, a major defeat for us. But, um, it would be, it would be better for the court, obviously, um, it would be better for um, ordinary people who who need access to these uh, to these procedures and these rights. Um, and so, I, you know, I hope Roberts is successful. I wish him luck. But uh, you know, this is your bed, buddy. You 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 made it. You're lying in it. You know, it's uh, yeah. nobody's going to respect the court after this. It's done. So, you know, I don't know what to tell him. Yeah. By the way, I, I t- welcome an investigation into who did it, mainly because. Uh, I mean, I'm a news junkie, so I'm like, yeah, who did this? You right. know? It's just like, wow. What a, I mean, what a ballsy move, no matter who did it. Uh, <laughs> it's like, But I will add this corollary to what you just said, and I don't know if I've had this conversation with you, but I've had it with other people. Uh, so you said something there. You began by saying uh, that, uh, you know, this could end a career. And I want to uh, just add this clarification to that point. Whoever leaked this, yes, their conventional career is over. But if it comes from the right, they will be sheltered by the right. And this is a, one of the many differences behind, between the way a hardcore right MAGA people treat their own and how, and I'll say liberals, because essentially if you're a clerk for the Supreme Court, you're probably a liberal. If you're, if you're with the Democrats, you're a liberal. You're not a lefty. You know, you're a liberal. And liberals, like they throw their young to the wolves. If if they if there's a, any kind of embarrassing, thing, oh my god, I'm outraged, and oh boy, it's go in the desert for forty days, and you know, do some punishment. Um, with right wingers, they give them, they find them a job. You know, they'll it's some that's what these foundations are for, uh, or they'll get them on Fox, or. You know, he'll get a column for the New York Post. You get what I'm saying? It's like they take care of their own. So some right winger who stuck his or her neck out by doing this. I mean, you're right. Ginny Thomas would be one of my leading uh, suspects uh, would only be applauded. You know, I mean, it's just think about how Donald Trump, anything he does, no matter how outrageous, just makes endears him more to MAGA. So that's another reason why. You know, I think it, my 
I'm leaning toward the right side because it's like, oh, this is career advancement for someone on the right. It's not a. <laughs> oh, wow. Yeah, they'll, they'll get the uh, eight o'clock speaking slot at the 2024 Republican National Convention. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> oh, boy. The, oh, I can't remember his name, but the man in St. Louis. Oh, yeah. His wife right. waving the gun. You would think, you know, the Republicans would run away. No, they put him on. Yeah. yeah. The future they of the party him. right there. People that wave guns at protesters. It's good stuff. Good yeah. stuff. Yeah. That's showing them. So anyway. Uh, well, we'll... I, it's, you bring up an important point, actually, which is that the, you know, I do think that the mainstream legal establishment is 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 quite conservative in a lot of ways in terms of its uh, sort of relationship to the to the Supreme Court as an institution, to the federal judiciary, and to a lot of progressive activism. Like, let me just tell you a quick story. Okay. My, so my my wife was a, a clerk um, on the Seventh Circuit Court of Appeals um, a while ago, six, seven years ago. So how long ago? Anyway, we had some of her fellow clerks over for dinner. And this was when I was like putting the final touches on it's time to fight dirty, you know. Um, and, uh, you know, Trump had been elected. All the stuff had already happened, you know. And they were like, so what's the book about? And I was like, oh, you know, expand the House of Representatives and add some states, you know, D.C. statehood and. And then I, I was, you know, almost under my breath because I, you know, read the room, right? <laughs> I was like, yeah, I'm a little bit. What's the, the whole chapter about court packing? <laughs> it was like, it was like someone had set off a grenade in that room. You know, they were like, what do you mean? Court, court packing. <laughs> You're a crazy person. And my, you know, my wife would like beg me not to have this conversation, but um, I'm not, uh, you know, not super reliable. A couple of martinis into a dinner party, you know? So um, anyway, I, I think it's... Uh, the, th this has changed over the last few years as as the outrages have piled on top of the outrages, but I think even even today your median sort of legal liberal does not exude you know like burn it down, pack the courts you know strip jurisdiction vibes. They just they they kind of just want to magically get back to the to the way things were, and it's like well, that's not happening. <laughs> you know, yeah. get radical, get on board. You know, this is where this is headed. Well, by the way, uh, to that point, and we've already—you've already gotten uh, several shout-outs in the show uh, this week uh, because we've made note uh, that <laughs> Joe Biden, at least for the moment, Lord knows if this is going to last more than a week, uh, has been going around uh, bashing ultra MAGA. I think that's um, uh, the, the phrase he's come up with. Uh, and I, for instance, don't, I already disapprove of that strategy because I don't think you need to put ultra in front of MAGA. MAGA is ultra. So putting ultra in front of MAGA makes it seem again, as like there's a legitimate MAGA out there as opposed to just batshit crazy people. Yeah, but he, uh, uh, not Joey B. It's like, you know, you're going to work your way up in slowly to denouncing, uh, this like evil force you're up against uh, ultra MAGA as opposed to the good MAGA. Uh, but anyway, he is sort of taking a page from the David Ferris playbook, who for weeks has been coming on uh, this show and saying, would you run against batshit crazy Dems? Hello, <laughs> please. So I don't know. I think David, even though he felt compelled to put the ultra in front of MAGA, uh, he took a page from your book. So feel good about that. Yeah, no, I appreciate that. Thanks, Joe. You know, uh, it's, thanks for listening. <laughs>
smash that subscribe button, Mr. President. Um, yeah, no, it's 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 good to see him going on on the rhetorical attack a little bit. I think I don't know what the polling on MAGA is, you know, but it's probably not great. So um, you know, put, calling them MAGA Republicans a step in the right direction. Ben, I prefer stronger language than that, but it's better than nothing. It would be classic Joe Biden if Joe Biden himself inserted the adjective ultra in front of it, which, which of course raises the question in the mind of like, what is our normal MAGA people fine? And, and like, is that, it's just only the ultra MAGAs that we don't like. And that, that might be like, Oh, well, everybody, but Marjorie Taylor Greene and Madison, uh, Mr. Orgy Cawthorn is, is fine, you know, yeah. but uh, it's just, the, it's only the ultras that we got to, we've got to worry about. <clears throat> I, I think, I, I don't know why this is just great advertising, I guess, but I can't really think of the word ultra anymore. Without without thinking of Michelob Ultra, the, the yeah, beer with like calorie on it. I don't know. So God bless whoever came up with that because that you've, you've really occupied space in my brain. So, yeah, no, I uh, I'm uh, more often than not more upset with the Republicans who hide under the table rather than confront MAGA, uh, as opposed to Marjorie Taylor Greene, uh, who I don't know far far as I could tell. Is pretty much in line where where most of the uh, Republican Party is these days. So I don't know why you need ultra. All right, uh, let's get down to uh, the uh, issue of abortion rights in this country. Uh, it's obviously at a, a very precarious state, and I don't think anybody knows what's going to happen once uh, the, it is official and that decision uh, has been um, pronounced, the one that we had the draft for. Uh, yesterday, some curious goings on in the state of Louisiana. Uh, David, I don't know if you saw this, but it just kind of shows how the Republicans themselves aren't quite, even MAGA doesn't know what to do with this. I, I don't know if you saw this, but if just in case you haven't, I'll just briefly summarize what went down. Uh, in the state of Louisiana, there was a measure that had passed that would essentially criminalize abortion uh, and so that uh, women uh, who get abortions could be thrown into jail. Uh, potentially, and uh, the Republicans' hierarchy panicked at that because that's a line they hadn't want to cross, they don't want to cross at this particular moment anyway, uh, and they uh, added an amendment that stripped it. Uh, they they uh, essentially th threw away that provision of the bill and chastised the people uh, who had been proposing it. Um, so that gives us, gives a sense of how Republicans... Uh, to a certain degree, are struggling with a world after Roe. Your thoughts on where we'll go uh, if Roe is uh, blown up? Well, it's uh, it's a big question. You know, I think um, I think the primary the, the primary reason that they scrapped this law in Louisiana is because there's an election looming. You know, um, and you know, throwing women who have abortions into jail is not popular, and the GOP which has made some gains in the last couple of years with, um, you know, like suburban parents who were mad about school closures or masks or just the economy. I'm really sure. Right. But um, they've made some they've made some inroads there and they are terrified that those same women are going to say, hmm, um, do I care more about like my kid was remote for a month longer than I wanted him to be or having my fundamental rights stripped away? <laughs> And uh, and I don't think that Republicans necessarily want to gamble uh, that that would be a winning strategy. So 
they are trying to soften the edges. Uh, there was a leak yesterday of, of talking points that are being circulated by the National Republican Senate Campaign Committee um, saying like, you know, we're not going to go after mothers, right? Like when this is not going to fall on, on mothers, <laughs> um, you know, try not to talk about it, basically. <laughs> um, and, uh, you know, that's because they're, I think, justifiably afraid of a backlash here. Um, and um, they they wouldn't care if they if they win Congress back in November. They're not going to care what Louisiana does. You know, I don't think that necessarily criminalizing um, the, the people who have the abortions would would pass in a majority of states that are going to to place severe restrictions on abortion. But you could certainly see it in a lot of the deep South states, you know, the, your Louisiana's and Mississippi's and Alabama's and Texas. I don't, you know, I don't think this stuff's going to fly in like New Hampshire right? um, or Michigan, but, uh, but you could see it happening. And I think that the, the only reason there was coordinated pullback there was because the optics were bad. Um, and so the battle has moved for now to the Senate, uh, to the U S Senate where our great majority leader, Chuck Schumer is determined to, to plow ahead with a bunch of votes that are going to lose, um, which is a very unique strategy he's deployed over and over again. Um, <laughs> and his, his time is the, what is probably going to be his very short time as the majority leader. Um, and uh, I just love the way that these things are reported. It's like uh, New York Times, you know, uh, build a codify row fails 49 to 51. However, asterisk, it needed 60 votes anyway. Um, <laughs> and you're like, what a country, you know, what a country. So the, uh, there are, there are two, <laughs> just, just take a second and think about that. It's like bill fails 54 to 46 in the Senate. It's like, God, take, just get me to another dimension where this is not true. Um, but there are two pro-choice Republicans in the Senate. That's or ostensibly pro-choice Republicans in the Senate. That's, uh, Susan Farrow Brow Collins, um, who's just so shocked, 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 um, that the people that told her that, uh, Roe v. Wade was settled law, um, lied to her. What a big. What, what what mind-blowing turn of events, Susan. Nobody else saw that coming. Uh, and then Lisa Murkowski of Alaska. Um, and they are pushing a different codification of Roe. I think the the crux of the disagreement uh, is about um, Casey v. Planned Parenthood uh, from 1992. That's the Supreme Court decision that allowed states to place, you know, certain kinds of restrictions and um, what uh, reproductive rights activists would tell you are just different ways to harass people who want abortions and to try to change their minds and to place as many obstacles between them and an abortion as you possibly can without running afoul of the Supreme Court. Um, and the, the Democrats' bill would essentially do away with those things. Um, and the, the bill that Collins and, and her one ally in the Senate <laughs> are pushing would essentially codify KCV Planned Parenthood instead of Roe, if that makes sense. So it doesn't like I, you know, we could could bring a a constitutional legal expert on the show. That's not me um, who could who could drill down into this a little bit deeper. The value added I can bring here, Ben, is to tell you that neither of these things is going to become law. Yeah. (laughs) Because um, at most, like if you throw Collins and Murkowski on top of all 50 Democrats, you have 52 votes. Yeah. and Collins has said, and Murkowski has said, and Manchin has said, and Cinema has said that they are not going to set aside the filibuster or carve out an exception to the filibuster to do this. So everyone is just wasting everyone's time right now. Wow. Um, as, as has often been the case in the last 10, 15 years, when very little actually happens in Washington, legislation-wise, 
um, this is theater. Um, and you, you can't really blame Schumer for, it's like, if there's nothing else to do, might as well do a play, right? I mean, I like acting. So he's, he's trying to get Republicans on record voting down a codification of Roe. Yeah. And the Republicans are, are twisting and squirming and saying, uh, we, we'd vote for some of them. And so, well, we'd vote for something else, except most of them wouldn't. Even the ones that would, wouldn't do the procedural changes that would make it necessary. Um, and so Collins and Murkowski, they can go out and call themselves pro-choice you know, pro if they want. At the end of the day, if you're not willing to use um, the power that is clearly granted to the Senate to change its own rules to, to do this, you're not pro-choice, you're pro-letting it happen. Okay. Yeah. Um, and so what, what's happening right now is just a sideshow. Um, I can't imagine it's going to take, take up more than another week or so for everyone to figure out that legislation is not getting through the U.S. Senate to codify Roe v. Wade under, under the current parameters. And at that point, we move <clears throat> into the uh, arena of electoral politics. And um, it, it can be it can feel kind of gross to just jump right into like, who does the, you know, winners and losers <laughs> of the Roe v. Wade, you know, like a Politico article. It's not what I'm trying to do, but... Um, but but it is you know it is my expertise, <laughs> and uh, I'm sure you've had other people on here to talk about the various other implications of this decision and the kinds of organizations you can donate to, and uh, people have been warning about this specific thing for years. Um, and all I can tell you is that uh, this is going to be one of the two or three big issues in the November election, um, and uh, if if Democrats can figure out a way to mobilize their supporters. Um, you could see it changing things a little bit, but um, I don't want to be like a downer here, but I'm not seeing any of that in, in the in the polling data that I have access to yet. So we're just going to have to see. No, well, actually, you've been a downer on this issue in the past. I, uh, I, I can remember <laughs> conversations. Uh, and I think the first time we had a conversation about this in any detail uh, was several months ago, long before uh, the um, decision was leaked, uh, where you were saying, and I'm paraphrasing from memory, that as, uh, as long as this remains a class issue, in other words, as long as uh, middle class or upper class women have access to abortion one way or another, uh, it will not be a pivotal issue uh, at the polls. So you were, I think we were talking specifically about Texas. Uh, and so if uh, Texas outlaws abortion, criminalizes abortion, uh, more or less in that state, and um, uh, if if a, a woman with money with means who lives in Houston, let's say, uh, can fly to California or Texas or New York, what have you, then it's not going to uh, be a motivating. I think that was uh, the David Ferris view of the world several months ago. Um, so yeah, you've already been a bit of a downer on that one. Uh, <laughs> just saying, it's a little late to now move away from the downer button. Um, I I, uh, I I I. I have a different question, uh, which is related to this. Uh, and this is something that we have talked a lot about the show and love your opinion is how far right can MAGA go before the country says enough? And I thought this was settled with the election in 2020 when Trump was defeated. But then MAGA had a new narrative, which is we actually won the election. We lost. And now they've pushed. They've. The entire Republican Party essentially buys into that, or they pretend as though, like Richard Irvin, the, it's not even a dispute. They don't want to talk about Richard Irvin running for governor here in the state of Illinois. Uh, so I'm watching this with a growing sense of apprehension and fear. Like, 
it doesn't seem okay. Yesterday in Louisiana, they threw up a guardrail, but I think your analysis is right on. It was just a temporary guardrail because there's an election. And so what they'll do as soon as that election is passed them, they bring back their legislation, they pass it, they give people about two years to get used to it, and they've moved, as I always talk about, moved, quote unquote, the center further to the right. So what's your sense? Is there a limit to how far right they can go before middle America says, no, you've gone too far? Yeah, I mean, electorally, assuming that we live in a world where there continue to be free and fair elections in the United States, <laughs> there certainly is a too far. You know, there there is, there are things that are settled social consensuses that um, that if Republicans go after these things, I think there could be a huge backlash. Um, the, and I'm thinking of uh, Obergefell. I'm thinking of like you know, uh, gay marriage, stuff like that. Right? Um, these are things that are supported by uh, overwhelming majorities of the American people. Um, even in swing states, uh, you know, access to contraception. I mean, there's there are social issues where the Republican Party is just uh, like off the reservation of public opinion. You know, they they are so far um, beyond the the social consensus in this country that you would think there'd be a huge backlash. But what I want to point out is the particular genius of the long con that Republicans have run over the last 20 years through the Supreme Court is that it is not Republican elected officials um, who, nationally who are doing these things. Okay. Um, it is the Supreme Court. It's like a, it's like a, it doesn't matter necessarily what happens in electoral politics. Um, as long as there is a 6-3 um, hard right majority on the Supreme Court, or worse, right, um, could be 7-2, uh, two more terms of Republican president, right? But if there's a 6-3 hard right majority on the Supreme Court, um, you, you can bring narrow Democratic majorities back into power. I think that's what happened in 2020. Um, that is, uh, tr Trump went too far in a variety of ways. The, you know, his COVID response was so, was so bananas that he, and his, his rhetoric and his comportment, people disliked him and they, they elected Democrats to do different things. And not only have Democrats not been able to do anything with their power, but they've, they've had to watch, kind of sit there and, and, and watch helplessly as the Supreme Court, appointed by past governments, um, issues decision after decision uh, that makes it even more difficult for Democrats to act. Um, and so the part B of the ingeniousness of this strategy is that the Supreme Court is the, at least as of a week ago, was still the most respected and trusted of our national political institutions. So it's going to take more to turn people against the Supreme Court than it is to turn people against the Republican Party. Um, and so Democrats really have their work cut out for them in terms of associating this Supreme Court with the Republican Party, with the unpopular social policies um, that Republicans would like to bring into being, not through legislation, but through this ill-gotten court majority of theirs. Um, and that's an uphill climb. I mean, we I probably talked about this before, but when I teach, um, I teach the judiciary in like an intro class at Roosevelt, which is a very draws a very progressive um, group of students, generally. Um, and I'm like, and then we talk about all these court reform ideas. And I'm like, what if we just didn't have judicial review? You know, or what if you know, what if there were supermajority requirements to overturn an act of Congress, or 
you know, people are just like, no, I like judicial review. It's great. You know, Brown v. Board of Ed and uh, Miranda and Obergefell, right? Um, there were a, a series of landmark decisions that came down mostly through the Warren Court in the 50s and 60s that still today form the basis of the sort of liberal respect for the Supreme Court of the United States as an institution. Um, and no matter, up until recently, no matter how hard I tried, um, you know, assigning excerpts from uh, Ian Milheiser's book about um, the history of, you know, conservatism on the Supreme Court, doesn't, it's just hard to get through to people. Um, and so if anything, maybe this is the, maybe this is the event that starts to puncture that halo of goodness that I think even mainstream liberals have for the Supreme Court. I'm rambling a little bit at this point, but uh, <laughs> it's uh, it's it's going to be it's going to be challenging to to fight back at this because again, unless unless we have a 52 vote majority in the Senate, we're not codifying Roe v. Wade. Even if we get that majority in the fall and we codify Roe v. Wade, that legislation could be overturned by the same Supreme Court. Yeah. Um, that mainstream Democrats refuse to countenance expanding, at least as far as I can tell. Um, you know, I doubt that there's 30 votes to expand this, the Supreme Court in the U.S. Senate right now. So it's like we, we're we almost there with the filibuster, but we got a ways to go with, with court expansion. Um, and I fear that just, you know, there's just going to be a, a blitzkrieg of this, not just social stuff too, but economic stuff. Um, and... Uh, Things regard things things about the executive branch and its ability to act independently. All this stuff is going to happen under the Supreme Court, and the and the the, whole, the reason that they went after the courts was a so that their vanishing majority could continue to exercise power over this country for another twenty or thirty years. Yeah. Um, and b, uh, it makes it it makes it harder to place the blame where it belongs. You know, because you may have Democrats in power when these things are happening. Um, and that's the situation right now. It's like a man on the street who runs Washington right now, it's the Democrats. You know, they don't want to talk about Joe Manchin and Kirsten Cinema. The Democrats are in charge. Supreme Court did this terrible thing and we can't get anything done. Um, and that is demoralizing. Right. And so what they are counting on and what I can't really rule out is that people are going to be so frustrated and so feeling so bleak about this. Um, they're not going to want to get out the vote for a party that's already in power, making more promises of what they'll do with more power. I think that's a tough needle to thread. Um, it is what has to happen, right? That's the only path. <laughs> but it's, it's that's a that's a tough road to hoe. Well, let me uh, tie two thoughts that you've made together and get your uh, response. Uh, so you're talking about uh, tactics that lie ahead for the Democrats. Uh, and before you were um, pointing out the futility of Schumer's effort to codify uh, uh, Roe, uh, and yet, um, or abortion rights, let's say, of uh, nationwide, and yet he introduced the matter anyway. Um, do you think he should have? Do you think he should have introduced it, knowing that it was going to lose? Do you think tactically that was the right thing to do? I, I'm not a big fan of holding votes that you know you're going to lose in in the Senate. You know, I think the extent to which, you know, it, it's uh, well, we can get this person on record, and then we can run against that vote. You know, that's not a theory that I, I think has a lot of data to support it. Um, and whoever is the target of that attack can always say, oh, well, you know, I would have voted for it if it had made it, you know, if we broke in the cloture vote or, you know, whatever. There's <laughs> the, the voting in the, in the Senate is complex enough that somebody will have a defense against that. Um, the reality is the only 
you know, there's only two or three Republicans that are that are vulnerable about their vote on this anyway, really. Um, and uh, Collins was just elected. Thanks. Special thanks once again. Each and if you're listening, each and every Biden Collins voter in the state of Maine, God bless you for your work. Um, this is your handiwork. Good, good, good job. Um, but uh, I just I don't see the upside, right? Like I do see the downside, and the downside is like, wow, the Senate the Senate Majority Leader keeps holding votes that his own party loses. Um, like he can't even get all fifty of them on board for this, right? Like Manchin voted against this. Big shock, I know. But by the way, it's thirty. I think thirty-eight minutes in. This is all maybe only our second. <laughs> I know. I was gonna say, ding ding. <laughs> Joe Manchin, bum bum bum. You're playing the Joe Manchin drinking game on this bonus episode. <laughs> Hold on, I'm a sip of coffee. Mm. <laughs> <laughs> so I don't know what the upside is. I mean, if you don't have the votes, you don't have the votes. If you think there's some, you know, I, I, I don't, I'm not, I don't have access to their internal polling. If you think there's some benefit to this, it doesn't. You know, it's not like the end of the world. It's just um, the plan beyond that is just win, right? You yeah. got to win the Pennsylvania Senate race. You got to win the Wisconsin Senate race. They're both very winnable. Um, if we can make modest improvements in the national political climate here. Um, but I haven't been particularly encouraged by the, by the polling that I've seen in the week since this decision came out. Like, I think if this was going to reset the national environment, you'd, I do think you would start to see it in the generic ballot polling for Congress. And um, there were a couple of encouraging polls, like the the Economist tracking poll has has Democrats up by two. The Politico tracking poll has Democrats up by two, and both of those polls had showed us trailing pretty badly. But you know, at the, in the same time period, there's other polls that show Republicans holding their lead. So it's um, I don't see a decisive shift yet. Maybe that's coming in the next week or so. Maybe that would only come when the real opinion is released. Yeah, you know, so I, I think that there's. All of this talk that, you know, our, our conversation, like, well, maybe Kavanaugh will change his mind, maybe Gorsuch will change his mind. Maybe it's still like it was after after the Texas law was upheld. People thinking, I'm I'm not going to believe this until the ink is dry on the decision. Yeah. Um, and maybe at that moment, um, the real national mobilization against this will begin um, and Democrats can try to fight the election on this turf. But, um, you know, it's it's just a, from from this vantage point, it's just so hard to say. How things are going to go because we still don't know exactly what's going to happen. We don't know what the reaction is going to be. <laughs> we don't know where, what the Democrats are clever enough to come up with a message, messaging strategy. We don't know how they're going to thread the needle of saying, give us more power. We need more power than the power that we already have, um, which again is, I think, their central predicament right now. Um, but, you know, don't give up, right? Like this is, if we want to win this fight, we have to, you know, we have to do well in November. That's the bottom line. And it's, yeah. it's not a, it's not inspirational. <laughs> um, but the reality is that having two or three more decent Democrats in the Senate would solve so many problems, um, not not just Roe v. Wade, but our ability to govern and, and get some of the other things that we want to get done for, for our constituents. Uh, that's, that's the bottom line. It's not fair. Um, that's the whole message of the last six years of my life. And so we're, we're always yeah. fighting on, 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 you know, it's like we start every game down three runs. And that's that's just that's just how it is. That's just how uh, it is. All right, let's uh, close by talking about the last six years of your life. It's as good a point as ever because I have a feeling, ladies and gentlemen, uh, the issue of reproductive rights uh, will be one that David and I, many guests, uh, will be talking about all through November. I do believe it'll be the paramount issue, uh, in my humble opinion. All right, uh, so uh, six years. 
Uh, as you noted in your column, you began writing uh, this uh, column uh, rough, right after, right either right before or right after, I can't remember which, uh, Trump secured the Republican nomination uh, in 2016 to be the presidential candidate for the Republican Party. The world looked one way then, it looks a different way now. Why don't you explain a little bit how it looked then and how it looks now and whether you're completely stunned, scared, and surprised uh, by the changes therein. Take it away. Yeah, so, um, yeah, I wrote, my, I wrote my first piece for the week in April of 2016, right? It was about, it was at the height of Bernie Hillary bitterness, right? So I, I had all these proposals about fixing the, the democratic primary process. Um, some of which hopefully will actually be happening. Maybe we could do another episode about that in a, in a year or so when that when that starts to ramp up. But um, the second one was about U.S. politics and the you know what I saw as a legitimacy problem of the the institutions not correctly translating popular sentiment into electoral outcomes, and then a Republican Party that seemed to be radicalizing by the moment. Um, I called. The Republican Party in that article, in, uh, what's called an anti-system party, in in political science terms, and that's a party that's not doesn't doesn't want to just change the government. wants to wants to change the system of government itself. Um, and a lot of people read that column. And they're like, "Oh man, that's that's crazy." <laughs> it's like, you know, you might not like Trump, but it's you know, it's Republicans. You know, it's like Reagan. You know, what are you talking about? And I said, you know, I see something dark emerging in the GOP. And my, my big mistake from that year was thinking that Trump had very little chance of winning um, and sort of not because I live in Chicago, Ben, you know, I mean, <laughs> I don't spend a lot of time in rural Ohio and uh, I, I didn't see and didn't appreciate the, the kind of cultural racial grievances bubbling up under the surface and anti-immigration sentiment being fused with anti, uh, you know, anti-NAFTA and all this stuff coming together in this package of, of the 45th president. Um, and so it was, um, it was an exciting six years. You know, there were times where I was writing two or three articles a week covering breaking news, trying to do opinion analysis of breaking news, um, about things sometimes which I was learning about myself on the fly, like, um, special counsel investigations and, um, rules concerning the replacement of federal officials and <laughs> so inside executive branch stuff that required actually a lot of research too. Um, and it was, it was exciting. You felt like you were part of something bigger than yourself, right? Like this, this monster has taken over the American government. Um, and journalists are, are the ones who are trying to keep them on the straight and narrow. And, um, I think there was a broad sense in 2016 and 2017 and 2018 that like, we can't go on like this, right? Like surely this person has alienated, um, enough people that there will be a decisive break with him. And I, I guess the big lesson of 2020, it was that that's not true. Um, the polls were probably off three or four points all along. Trump was maybe always a bit more, maybe not majority popular, but probably more popular than we thought he was. Um, and um, in a lot of ways, it's disappointing because it feels like we're right back where we started in 2016 when I started writing this stuff um, and, and talking about some of the central institutional problems in American politics that, that we've had the opportunity to fix over the last 18 months and we just have not done so. Um, and then you have Trump talking about running again. Um, and so it's like, I feel like I did a lot of good work. Um, at the same time, there is a pervasive sense of disappointment. And for me, that that not more has changed, um, that 
either we have not been able to change people's minds or the conversation has been turned in other directions or fundamentally people, this is my working theory right now, people do not actually care as much about democracy as we think they should no. um, or that they tell pollsters that they do. Yeah. And, uh, and so the, you know, the, the project of the, of the coming years in American politics is, um, is to convince enough people and to elect enough people, even on a very unfair playing field, who are willing to do some of these things um, and, and to make a different kind of world possible. So anyway, that was, that was the column. Basically it was just, uh, you know, one of these standard, like, this is what I got right. This is what I got wrong. <laughs> yeah, no, I love the, what you got wrong. We'll get into that. We'll close with what you got wrong. Cause it is pretty funny. Uh, <laughs> yeah, but I think that last point you made, uh, is, uh, is at the heart of it all. And is that uh, people uh, do not care as much about democracy as we think they do. And boy, has that been on display since uh, January 6, 2021. Uh, well, it's been on display since the uh, presidential election of November 2020, uh, where the Republican Party has followed Donald Trump uh, wherever he leads them on the issue of he is the actual winner. And uh, here I am. How many years? It's almost two full years after that election saying the obvious. Joe Biden won. Donald Trump lost. Get over it. And, you know, Scalia said that. You know, that's so funny. This is why Republicans are so infuriating. Scalia, who's revered by Republicans for his role uh, being uh, Alito before Alito on the Supreme Court, uh, after they, he handed the election to George Bush in 2020, he made a comment, a flip comment. I forget where. Get over it. You know what I'm saying to Dems? And I got to tell you, as being on the losing side of the election, there was a lot more pain because that election was closer. Dottie didn't even win the popular vote uh, in 2020. So it's so ironic that... Uh, Scalia would say, get over it. And uh, here we are two years into it, and the Republicans haven't gotten over it. Uh, all right, let's just close. Well, I, I would love to hear your take on this one. I, I had a laugh out loud. I, I give you credit for calling attention to it, uh, your most embarrassing <laughs> column. I don't know what you called it. Uh, and it was a column predicting big things for Beto O'Rourke. Uh, <laughs> I think it wrote it in 2018 at the height of uh Beto mania. And, um, of course things didn't go well for me. Didn't win that election. Uh, that's senatorial election. And it's, and then he doubled down by running for president. Wow. A bad move anyway. Uh, so let's close with, uh, some reflections on, on Beto and your, uh, column. Go ahead. Sure. You know, in my defense, uh, <laughs> in my defense, <laughs> you know, you write a hundred columns a year. I mean, you're going to get some stuff wrong. Um, and that's just that that's the nature of the business. That's the nature of being a generalist where it's like, you're, you're writing about a lot of different things and you're doing your best. Right. But you're not going to get it right. Um, the, the, the premise of the piece, this is actually after Beto had lost his Senate election, um, but had become this like popular national figure. I remember he raised like $80 million or something for that race wow. from outside of Texas. Um, and we all got it. We all got it. We, we all mis, mistook um, hatred of Ted Cruz for enthusiasm for better work, I guess. Yeah. Um, and the, the premise of the piece was like, um, you know, the, what Democratic voters can be looking for in 2020 is is somebody with like a kind of a vague, um, amorphous optimism about the country, 
um, who's a, you know, sort of a little bit hard to nail down ideologically, like people won't, you know, they're not gonna be looking for, for a Bernie Sanders again in 2020, because things have changed. Um, and maybe better is the guy that could carry that torch. And, uh, <laughs> you know, when something turns out, when something goes bad real quick, you know, you're like, boy, do I really, do I have to link to this on my homepage anymore? <laughs> terrible piece of writing, but you can't hide from it. You know, you, you can't hide from it. You wrote it, you published it. It is what it is. Um, and uh, I, I not only got, I guess, the mood of the country wrong, but I got him wrong. But, but when he started, when he came out on those, in those debates, he just wasn't, you know, he wasn't the guy from the campaign trail in Texas. He looked green. You know, he looked like he didn't know what he was doing. And uh, I don't know if you remember this because this was pre-pandemic back in the, you know, Oh, I remember. So many things have happened, but he he launched his campaign with this cover story in Vanity Fair, uh, which he was on the cover, you know, like all gussied up, and he was like, "I was born for this" or something. The, the tagline of the piece was so embarrassing for him; yeah. it was like, "Yeah, baby, I was born to run," you know. <laughs> <laughs> and I looked at that, and I was like, "Oh boy," you know, can I call my editors and have that thing taken down? But uh, <laughs> it is what it is. You can go read it. It's called "Beto Is the New Bernie," and it's very bad. Um, and, uh, it's, you know, I've got five or six or seven of those things I could have linked to in terms of, um, just stuff I got absolutely wrong. Right. Like this last summer, I was like, COVID is now a plague that only affects rural areas. Um, and, uh, that's wrong. Right. Um, and so sometimes the things that are wrong are things that you're not really an expert about. Some, sometimes it's things that you're too close to. Um, and so in the, in the 2020 primaries, I was maybe a little bit too close to my enthusiasm for Elizabeth Warren to, to see how she was actually doing. Um, and uh, I do think the thing that separates us from just propagandists or ideologues is like every once in a while, I got to be able to step back and be like, that was dumb. Yep. <laughs> you know? I got that wrong. If you can't do that, you're just doing someone's bidding, you know? Um, and so I'm not proud of these bad articles, but I'm, you know, I, I am committed to, to being introspective about it and pragmatic about it and saying like, you know, the bottom line is like, what works? How can we help people? How can we get more people into power who want to help people? That's, you know, that's the work of a life and you're not going to get it done if you never admit that you're wrong. That is really well put. And uh, I appreciate that. I give you a lot of credit for uh, owning up to it. Uh, and let me just, <laughs> oh my goodness, you got a long way to go before you catch up uh, to me. Uh, on <laughs> columns I wish I hadn't written, things I got wrong, mistakes I've made. Uh, but, uh, yeah, that's the reality. And, yeah, you know, I always say this. Uh, it's even more true with doing a podcast, which I really enjoy for many different reasons, but this is one, one of them. Something happens. And I come on a podcast and it's expected that I have an opinion about it. Mm -hmm. And it literally just happens. I'm like absorbing it. You know what I mean? I mean, I don't know what my opinion is, but you got to have an opinion. And uh, when you're doing a column, uh, in my case, I write a weekly column. So I have a little more time generally to reflect and absorb. But, you know, it's still just a matter of days more often than not. Uh, so, yeah, sometimes it got. Yeah, sometimes it's like, I don't know. I don't know. <laughs> right? I don't know. Why would I know? Like, so when I, the first question I asked you, you didn't know. And, you know, I mean, do you think they're going to uh, redo the uh, the decision now that it got such a bum review? Uh, you don't know. 
Um, know. You know, so you don't know. Um, but anyway, I got a kick out of it. And uh, one day we'll do a whole show on columns that I got wrong. How about that? Um, that I don't know. <laughs> We could go tit for tat, you know. You give me one wrong, I'll give you another wrong. We'll just go. Yeah. Well, most of mine are local, so uh, but it, some of them are pretty bad. All right, uh, David Ferris, thank you very much. Uh, we'll see what the world looks like when you return in a couple of weeks. All right. Sounds great, Ben. Thanks for having me on the show. All right, that's David Ferris. I'm Ben Jarofsky. Take care, everybody. Mm-hmm.